Welcome to COG, our exciting new podcast project where we explore conversations in obstetrics and gynaecology for clinicians. Today on COG, we talk maternal mortality with Professor Elizabeth Sullivan, a public health physician and internationally renowned epidemiologist. Elizabeth was instrumental to the establishment of Australia's Maternity Outcome Surveillance System, or AMOS, which supports research on the incidence, management and outcomes of rare conditions resulting in severe maternal and perinatal morbidity and mortality. Things like amniotic fluid embolism, peripartum hysterectomy, superobesity and vasoprevia. Australia has one of the lowest maternal mortality rates in the world, so where are the gains to be made? And how do we improve practice when events like amniotic fluid embolism are so rare? We'll find out with Elizabeth today. I'm Rachel Nugent, and for today's conversation in obstetrics and gynaecology, I'm delighted to be joined by co-host Ted Weaver. Hello, I'm Ted Weaver, and I'm delighted to be co-presenting this series of podcasts with Rachel. This is Conversations in Obstetrics and Gynaecology, and we thought we'd start by looking at maternal mortality in Australia. Obviously, maternal mortality is a relatively unusual outcome in Australia, but it's a marker of the quality of our maternity care. Now we know from published data that Australia has relatively low levels of maternal mortality compared with other countries. In the quadrennium from 2008 to 12, our maternal mortality was 7.1 per 100,000. And this compared with New Zealand between 2010 and 2012, where it was 14.7 per 100,000, the UK 9 per 100,000, and in America, 18.5 per 100,000. The sobering thing though for Rachel and I when looking at this data was that for our non-Indigenous population, the maternal mortality rate was 6.6 per 100,000, but for our Indigenous women, it was 13.8 per 100,000. More than double, which gives an indication of how far or how wide the gap is that we have to close in providing equity in maternity care in Australia. Of the six most prominent causes of maternal death, psychosocial cause is the only one that is increasing. So on that note, I'm excited to introduce Elizabeth Sullivan. Elizabeth, you've been integral to developing the Australian Maternity Outcome Surveillance System. Its aim is to find out more about rare and serious disorders associated with pregnancy. I'm really interested to know how that came about. What was the path that led you to starting AMOS? Oh, thank you, Rachel. Um, the path was that I had been working um, as the director of the National Perinatal Statistics Unit, as it was known at that time, and I'd been involved with um, looking at maternal mortality in Australia. And it was very evident that um, Australia had a very low maternal mortality rate, but that we really had, and with reasonable data on that, but we had no information on uh, women who were, I suppose, either near misses or I like to call them great saves, and uh, that this was an issue that, first of all, we couldn't quantify. Secondly, we weren't sure whether there were modifiable or preventable risk factors for those women that you could be working on and sort of decreasing the numbers. And I, at that stage, uh, met Marion Knight from UCOS and had a look at that system and thought, well, it would be, be very good and timely for us to set up something equivalent to what she'd been doing in the UK so that we could look at these rare and serious disorders in pregnancy. You mentioned UCOS. I see that you've recently had an event where you were forming some links with these other bodies internationally. How does AMOS link in with other bodies like UCOS? So 
UCOS is the United Kingdom Obstetric Survey System and ENOS is the International Network of Obstetric Survey Systems. So I was involved with the development of of ENOS uh, with Marion back in, oh gosh, you're going to catch me here, I think about 2010 maybe, but that may not be correct. And we decided that it was very important to be able to look at um, these conditions on an international basis. And the reason was was because because they're rare. Essentially, you need to have greater numbers. You need international studies. Right. So the data set improves for these rare events when you have bigger organisations trying to collect and, and examine those events. Yeah. So what's most critical is Australia and New Zealand, there's about 365,000 births per year. The UK has about um, 750,000 a year, maybe around that. So when you, so it's, that gives us, instead of having a look at 300 odd thousand, you then get a million people you can look at in a year. So it means when you're looking at conditions where the instance might be one in 2,000 or one in 1,000, uh, then the larger the population at risk, the better it is. Yeah, so just following on from that, Elizabeth, do you think it's a weakness in our system that the various state quality councils that are responsible for investigating maternal deaths are precluded from providing feedback to individual institutions? For instance, if, if I knew at a hospital that their, their, their care for a particular condition was terrible, me as a quality council member can't feed that back. Do you think that's a problem? Look, Ted, I obviously don't work in this area, so I don't know how those councils are set up and what their rules and regulations are. But I suppose what I think in any type of quality audit system, having um, feedback that is evidence-based and um, and in a positive way to improve care or you know strengthen systems and processes... I think you would find is always of benefit. And it's sometimes it's these issues around both confidentiality and around movement of data, isn't it? You know, that makes yeah. it very, very challenging. Indeed. We talked about the randomised controlled trial now, which is considered, as you know, the gold standard for evidence-based practice in medicine. But in rare events, it's difficult to power studies adequately to allow detection of rare outcomes And so we have to rely on big data in this respect. But what do you think are the strengths and pitfalls of using that to analyse these sorts of rare outcomes that you're looking at with AMOS? Yeah, so I think AMOS, there's two ways of looking at rare and serious conditions in pregnancy. There's the approach of something like AMOS or UCOS or the equivalent, where we're looking at a condition and we're essentially um, doing an observational prospective study, looking at what occurs, you know, how common is it, what's the management, what's the risk factors, um, what are the outcomes. And often this information is not known. And in order to do that, there needs to be really a clinical audit at certain stages of the pregnancy to be able to determine what is actually happening and particularly where there aren't um, clinical best practice or guidelines available on how you manage those conditions because they're so rare. I think one of the enormous benefits of the studies, which we haven't really quantified well, is that putting a study on the map 
means that all of a sudden there's a lot more um, information, there's a lot more awareness of those conditions. And so I think in some ways even doing that makes people rethink about how um, a condition should look should be looked at, how it's managed, how it's treated. And I think that's very evident with rheumatic heart disease and pregnancy where really prior to the AMOS study, not much focus had ever been given on pregnant women, yet, you know, the women at risk of rheumatic heart disease in pregnancy were uh, were disproportionately um, poor, Aboriginal, and, uh, Aboriginal living in the top end of Australia. And they, of course, you know, uh, there'd been much more of a paediatric focus, which enorm- makes enormous sense in terms of prevention from rheumatic fever to rheumatic heart disease. But there was also this cohort of young of, of women who were having babies with rheumatic heart disease where we didn't even know the outcomes, we didn't know how they were being managed, whether they were being nearly diagnosed during pregnancy, all sorts of things, which, of course, on an individual basis, extremely rare because only a few people are seeing these cases, but collectively they still make up quite a burden to the health system and, you know, and need to have best practice management. Absolutely. Very much, yeah. Another paper that the AMOS group published in the British Journal of ONG in 2014 also looked at socioeconomic status as an independent risk factor for severe mm. maternal morbidity in Australia. This work was really interesting and it confirmed an association between lower socioeconomic status and higher rates of severe maternal morbidity. How do you think this plays out, this association? Do you think that public health care is less good than private health care, for instance? No, look, I think that's not the question, actually. I think the question is that poverty and social disadvantage uh, from from the beginning of time is associated with um, higher rates of both morbidity and earlier mortality. And I think um, when we think of pregnancy, and I'm not an obstetrician, you know, the majority of people, pregnancy is a physiological state. You know, they go through it. And there's not, there aren't enormous amounts of complications or um, poor outcomes on a population level. And you know, uh, in Australia we have a, a healthcare system which is fantastic because everybody has access to the best healthcare, uh, hopefully. But you know, it's fairly uniform across the country, which is not the way you see it in other countries. So I think the association between um, severe maternal morbidity and um, low socioeconomic status reflects what we see across the sort of illness pattern. And it's just that when we're looking in pregnancy, we see that. I suppose the question is, is it worse in pregnancy than you see in other conditions? And I suppose we can't, with the sort of data we have, answer that question. Having said that, I think it also shows the importance of really being able to make sure that everybody in Australia has access to the best uh, clinical care during pregnancy. And that can be, and there are many different models of care, as you know, in Australia for that. And I think, um, and that is both, uh, you know, I mean, that has lots of benefits as well. So I suppose at some times challenges. So I think critically, it's making sure that we engage people who may be not as, familiar or maybe not using the healthcare system as often as they need to in pregnancy to make sure that 
they it's an opportunity to improve their health literacy and also to improve their opportunities going forward to have better health care. Yeah, that's interesting because my next question is, do you think that there are things that we can do at the coalface as clinicians to improve the outcomes for these women or do you think it is much more an area that needs to be addressed by government and social policy? Uh, I think I think there's I think it's both and all of the above. Um, uh, look, I think pregnancy is a unique opportunity where uh, we see women on a regular basis over a period of time, where hopefully, on the whole, they're reasonable. You know, they're well. So there are lots of opportunities within that time to um, link them in or improve their health literacy about the value of doing certain things to um, improve their health. I think it's very important we don't have a deficit model around this. It's about um, supporting people to make uh, choices that give them a better pathway going forward. And I know I sound a bit like I'm talking in sort of, you know, I don't know, sort of that sort of language where it doesn't say much, but it's, I, I think the deficit model is very important. It's not, the, the women aren't the problem. It's that society hasn't given them the right platform going forward. And I think it's so important because, of course, you know, if we look at the epigenetic potential and the issues around a healthy start to life for um, the children or the infants that are born following the pregnancy, it is really important that we link women who are potentially at risk uh, into services. And, you know, we talk about even things like obesity. You know, how much support is there uh, to pay for childcare, to help people have dietitians? You know, to tell people to lose weight, if you don't have a sort of armamentarian of, you know, opportunities to use gyms, personal trainers, buy more expensive food, which is the better food, um, you know, have childcare so you can go and exercise, or there's, do you know what I mean? There's all. It's not as it's it's not as simple as just saying that because if you if you don't have a car, you can't get to to you know medical appointments. So I think government policy needs to support people so they all have the opportunity to have a a healthy and happy pregnancy. So that's certainly true, Elizabeth, and I know we've been looking at say the social determinants of health from looking at what Michael Marmot and others have written. And we would have concerns, I guess, about the education system, the sex education and relationship education that occurs in schools, health literacy of young women who are the women that we really want to have some idea about pregnancy and sexually transmitted infection and all those things that are important for women's health when they're young. So how do you think that we could get a whole of government approach to this, get these subjects on the agenda and realise that it's a lifelong thing, not only for the the women, but also for their babies. And also we now know for their babies that, you know, these epigenetic changes will go all across mm. generations. Yeah, and I think um, it's sort of, that's a sort of a podcast in itself, isn't it, really? Yeah, it is really. I think, yeah. Uh, I think, I suppose, um, and I certainly don't have the answers to this, um, but certainly there are an enormous number of vulnerable women and then vulnerable families out there, which I think sometimes uh, with the beautiful weather we have and the sort of the way of our life, there are, you know, sometimes we forget. And one of the things that um, struck me most, I'm going back to rheumatic heart disease again, was that 
You know, we all remember that statement from Bob Hawke about no child will live in poverty or something. I think he did, you know, years and years ago. But I was, the one thing that really surprised me, and I've worked in public health for a long time, was the amount of food insecurity that was became evident amongst um, some of the women who were who participated in um, the qualitative stories about uh, qualitative journeys during pregnancy with RHD, and it I, it I must say it did shock me. You know, there was not enough food to feed um, to be able to support their families uh, during, and they, you know, not just their pregnancy themselves. And I think we need to be much more cognizant or maybe not we, but certainly myself now and, you know, others, that there is, people do live in extreme poverty in Australia. You know, it's not just the maternity care providers, it's it's also how people get treated by um, reception, by, you know, other staff involved with care, you know, how they get there, how appointments are made, you know, it's all sorts of things that impact on people's um, feeling of being include. You know, the inclusiveness of the service for those who may be who may be more marginalised. I think very much so. We spoke a little bit earlier around maternal death related to early pregnancy events, and I'm wondering if you agree with the WHO stance that all suicide deaths in pregnancy are direct maternal deaths, given that suicide is a major cause of late maternal death and increasingly common after first trimester termination of pregnancy. Mm. Look, I think um, this is an important question. I personally was not in favour of um, suicide being a direct maternal death, but I think I've moved on from that. I think... um, there's a different question, really, and I think the question is: Is have we do we still need to classify things as direct and indirect maternal deaths, or are they just a maternal death? Uh, because in reality, in this country where we've got so few deaths, it's really a semantic um, it's really a semantic definition about why 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 do we classify them as direct or indirect? And what is the purpose? What is the objective of classifying them? Does that make a difference in terms of the way we manage things going forward or the way we set up guidelines, practice, etc.? And I think that's probably the question we should be answering because essentially you're just moving deaths from one side of the um, ledger to the other. And I think the other thing is I actually feel quite strongly that if you have suicide deaths as direct maternal deaths, well, why are you not having domestic violence? Where's domestic violence? Why is it being or interpersonal violence? Where, why is it not? Why is it treated differently? Uh, I think it's very important to raise the profile of um, mental health and pregnancy and maternal deaths. So, but I have whether classification is really how relevant classification is now. I think it's a diff, is really probably the question. The, the question we should be discussing. So what would you like to see happen on that violent death aspect, whether we talk about domestic violence or suicide, what would you like to see happen to see continued improvements in maternal and perinatal death rates? Yeah, I think what uh, would be useful is um, continuing on the track that we're going in that making, um, you know, destigmatizing mental health uh, disorders 
and also, I suppose, improving um, access to highly specialised care during pregnancy and in the postpartum period and also periconceptually if someone has a risk factor for it. I think one of the big challenges is that you know, screening and identifying um, women at risk for um, major mental health complications, and obviously suicide is horrendous, uh, is is very important. But also being able to have opportunities for women to be um, given the appropriate specialist care, which may be outside of obstetrics, uh, is I think one of the biggest challenges. And also. Um, no, it needs to be available in the public sector. So, Elizabeth, you, we know that maternity care in Australia now has changed a lot because it's becoming increasingly characterised by midwifery models of care, which is supposed to be underpinned by collaborative practice with obstetricians, with midwives referring to doctors as per agreed referral guidelines. And what we want to know is, do you have any concerns that we'll see an increase in adverse perinatal outcomes because of failures to refer in a timely way, perhaps because of turf wars or a perceived notion that um, the pregnancy is normal and physiological and everything's going okay, and that that will lead to later referrals? And do you think that's something that Amos could be interested in looking at? Because it is a big change compared to how we used to do business. Uh, look, Ted, I think um, I, I obviously don't work clinically, so I probably can't really answer the former question. But do I think it would be very useful to, when if there's changes in any types of models of care, I think it is very um, thoughtful and the best thing to do is always to set up a system of being able to monitor both the strengths and the, both the benefits and the potential challenges that, uh, or issues that may, unexpected issues that may arise from those changes. So I think being able to have a good way of um, monitoring uh, the outcome of women, uh, uh, as we want to do always in pregnancy to maximise, uh, you know, a good outcome for both the mother and the baby, uh, makes enormous sense. Probably about all I can really add to that argument at the moment. Yeah, you know, I might shoot you an email about that sometime. I'll <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we'll talk offline. Uh, so thanks for your time today, Elizabeth. I just have one final question for you, and that is what do you consider to be the most pressing issue to be addressed by health services in women's health in the next five years? Uh, look, yeah, gosh. That's a really good question, and I just to sort of caught a bit off balance as to what I think is the most pressing issue. Look, I think um, it's very important that um, young women uh, are empowered to make um, choices and are fully informed and are literate in terms of um, their their the their opportunities for both um, reproduction and their opportunities for a healthy um, healthy sexual health, for want of a better term. So, and that really covers um, things around, um, you know, HPV vaccination, um, understanding, um, you know, sexual health that's safe, you know, in terms of um, 
both contraception and in, in, in prevention of STIs. It's understanding what's normal. Uh, it's understanding about, um, you know, where they can think about what their fertility is going to be, issues around fertility and also about future planning. So it's, it's, it's giving young people, I suppose, the information and, you know, at progressively over there, over as they, as they mature around, um, how to have healthy and happy lives in terms of their, um, sexual and reproductive systems. And how we do it, I suppose, I'm not sure. Obviously, um, different information is of value at different times. And I think the other really important area is that we haven't had enough, I don't know if there's enough research in it or, or is, is that preconception planning, you know, thinking about, and, and that it's a sort of a tricky area because most pregnancies aren't planned. Um, but I do think having good understanding and good systems and sort of working out where do we, where is that best delivered and, and by which groups is really important. So maybe if we can strengthen that, um, preconception planning and that transition from um, from adolescent to young person who may be thinking about pregnancy, I think that's probably an area that we could deal with um, improving. And I think the other thing too is, you know, things, if we think about contraception and stuff, it's looking at pre- it's prevention of unintended pregnancies, I think is a really important area. Australia has a very low use of larks and, I, you know, there's, I think there's lots of work around sort of strengthening that transition phase. I think that's a great way to wrap it up. Thank you very much for your time today, Elizabeth. That's a pleasure. That was Professor Elizabeth Sullivan, epidemiologist and public health physician, talking about maternal mortality in Australia and the work of AMOS, the Australian Maternity Outcome Surveillance System. Next up on COG is Journal Club, and this week's focus, maternal mortality. So our first article for review in Journal Club in Conversations in ONG is a 2015 AMOS study published in BMC Pregnancy and Childbirth entitled Amniotic Fluid Embolism, an Australian-New Zealand Population-Based Study by the authors Nolan et al. Now this study, like much of AMOS's work, was a population descriptive study using AMOS data. Uh, and it's quite comprehensive in that it covers 96% of Australian births and 100% of New Zealand births for the time period 2010 to 2011. Uh, this study used the criteria for diagnosing amniotic fluid embolism uh, as clinical diagnoses, things like acute hypotension, cardiac arrest, acute hypoxia and coagulopathy in the absence of any other explanation. Alternatively, AFE was diagnosed on a post-mortem by fetal squames or debris detected in the pulmonary circulation. I think it really rammed home for me the clinical nature of diagnosing AFE and the absence of a good diagnostic test. So we know that AFE is relatively rare and some clinicians will never see one in their practice lifetime. But this study identified 33 women, which gave an incidence of 5.4 per 100,000 women. So it is quite rare. But this is comparable with the UCOS figure of 6 per 100,000 women giving birth. And review of these cases highlights the symptomatology associated with amniotic fluid embolism was fairly consistent with that shown in other literature. So the women had symptoms such as premonitory symptoms, shortness of breath, hypotension, and acute fetal compromise. 
And in the study, there were five maternal vets which gave a mortality rate for amniotic fluid embolism of 15%. And this is consistent with other literature from Canada, from the United States, and from the Netherlands. So this article really highlights the importance of awareness of these events, the role of adequate cardiopulmonary resuscitation, and the role of perimortem caesarean section. The study also highlighted some risk factors, some of which are known, things like maternal age, multiple pregnancy, caesarean section, and polyhydramnios. But interestingly, it also showed an association with assisted reproductive technology, with 25% of cases of amniotic fluid embolism associated with IVF. It really highlights a need for more research in this respect. The absolute numbers were too small to, to prove an association, but it certainly highlights one. So, Ted, for me, the take-home practice points from this study were we really need to have a diagnostic suspicion for amniotic fluid embolism in our practice. Uh, If we see people with the premonitory symptoms, hypotension and shortness of breath, um, we really need to recognise those symptoms and act early because the only true diagnostic test we have is post-mortem. So be aware. Yeah, and I agree. And and the take-home practice point for me is that every unit providing maternity care has to be adequately prepared for the high-intensity, low-frequency obstetric event, which amniotic fluid embolism clearly is. So we'll need to manage these women using a multidisciplinary approach, and it's important that we can call the emergency early, provide accurate first-line treatment, and the way that you might help yourselves in your unit in doing this is practicing team training in obstetrics using a variety of simulation methods, to help you achieve this. So I think that for me is the main take-home message from this study. Summary, amniotic fluid embolism is a rare event that carries with it a 15% mortality rate. Its early signs are consistent and include premonitory symptoms, shortness of breath, hypotension and fetal compromise. Cornerstones of management are adequate CPR with aortocaval decompression and perimortem caesarean section. Make sure maternity care teams are adequately trained for such high-intensity, low-frequency events. Contact Ranscog for more information on prompt training near you. So moving on to our second article for consideration today is an article entitled Decreasing Mortality During Pregnancy and for a Year After While Mortality After Termination of Pregnancy Remains High a population-based register study of pregnancy-associated deaths in Finland from 2001 to 2012. Now, the authors of this study were E. Kuralis and colleagues, and it was published in the British Journal of Obstetrics and Gynaecology in December of 2016. This study, as it states, was essentially a retrospective cohort study based in Finland, which aimed to investigate the pregnancy-associated mortality up to a year after pregnancy. It used data linkage techniques of a number of Finnish registries, including the cause of death register, the medical birth register, the register on induced abortions, and the care register, which is a register for healthcare. It looked at 10,427 deceased women of reproductive age. Now, I found the definition of pregnancy-associated death quite interesting because that definition looks at the death of a woman while pregnant or within a year of termination of pregnancy, irrespective of the cause of death or the site of the pregnancy. So this data looks less at the traditional distinctions of early and late death and direct, indirect and incidental death and more at the overall risk of death in women who have been pregnant in the year preceding their death. 
The age-adjusted mortality rate was 28.4 per 100,000 pregnancies, and this was significantly decreased from the previous 14 years' data, in which the mortality rate was 37.8 per 100,000 pregnancies. This was attributed by the authors to improved overall health care and reflected by the 25% reduction in overall death rates in that population of women. It also showed that overall mortality is lower among pregnant than non-pregnant women, which may be a reflection of the well-woman effect of pregnancy or perhaps some behaviour modification of women who are pregnant. So the most alarming outcomes of this study for me were the psychosocial causes of death, the suicides and homicides that sometimes follow determination of pregnancy. And pregnancy-associated mortality is highest in the subgroup of suicides following termination at 21.8 per 100,000 pregnancies versus 10.2 per 100,000 women years in the comparator group. That's about double the risk of suicide in women in the year following TOP than in the non-pregnant population. And another alarming feature of this study was the death by homicide in the same group, where they found that women were four times as likely to die by homicide than the non-pregnant population in the year following termination of pregnancy. The absolute numbers are small, only 6.8 per 100,000 pregnancies, but the difference is still alarming. And so there were a number of practice points that came out of this study for both of us. So, Rachel, what did you think? Yeah, look, I'd completely agree with the author's recommendation that routine follow-up following termination of pregnancy uh, should be instituted to help recognise developing physical, mental or social problems and to offer appropriate services for those. And certainly I think it again highlights the need for adequate screening of women for mental health issues who are undergoing termination of pregnancy. And so we need to have follow-up of those women as well to ensure that they cope well with the termination of pregnancy. And then I think we should also highlight the risks that domestic violence poses to women in these sorts of clinical situations. I think it probably highlights as well um, a need for institution of adequate management options in both the private and the public sectors to help these women navigate their, their social, emotional and mental health after an event such as termination of pregnancy. So this is a Finnish study about termination of pregnancy and results may not be completely generalisable to Australia as our health system and geography are quite different. But they do support Australian data which suggests that psychosocial mortality is a leading cause of maternal death, especially after termination of pregnancy. So we need more research urgently to screen women for psychological morbidity in relation to term pregnancy and to termination of pregnancy and to establish effective pathways to assess and manage the risk of suicide and interpersonal violence following term pregnancy and first trimester termination of pregnancy. And then finally, we're going to look at an article from The Lancet that was published in May of this year entitled The Effect of Early Tranexamic Acid Administration on Mortality, Hysterectomy and Other Morbidities in Women with Postpartum Hemorrhage. And it was entitled The Woman Study. And it was an international, randomised, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial compiled by the woman collaborators, who were too numerous to mention here. So what the trial did was it recruited just about 20,000 women once they'd been diagnosed as having a PPH. And they were then randomised to either placebo or a gram of tranexamic acid, which was administered IV over 10 minutes. And if the bleeding continued up to 30 minutes or stopped and restarted within 24 hours, a second dose could be given. And postpartum hemorrhage was defined conventionally 
as 500 mils following vaginal birth or 1,000 mils following caesarean section within the first hour or two of giving birth. So look, this study I think is a really exciting study for obstetrics. Uh, it confirmed the findings uh, of other trauma trials, such as the CRASH-2 trial, which suggests the benefit of interruption of the fibrinolytic pathway and also suggests that that mechanism for stopping bleeding is time-dependent. There was a significant mortality benefit if tranexamic acid was administered within three hours of delivery, but there was no associated benefit with administration after three hours of delivery. And I think the really important findings to talk about are the reduced mortality uh, with a relative risk of 0.69 and a 95% confidence interval of 0.53 to 0.9. The other really significant finding was that of a reduced laparotomy to control bleeding. That had a relative risk of 0.64 with a 95% confidence interval of 0.49 to 0.85 and a p-value of 0.002. On the flip side of that, Importantly, there was no increase in adverse effects or complications. In addition, there was no difference in administration of blood products for either group. So the take-home practice points? So the trial was adequately powered to detect a 25% difference in a mortality rate of 2.5% of women experiencing PPH. That's quite a sobering thought for the state of women's health internationally when we recognise that around about a quarter of a million women or more, usually in low resource settings, will die from postpartum hemorrhage every year. I think for us practicing obstetrics in Australia, it's important to realise that the clinical criteria used in this study are really clinically relevant. The definitions of PPH are relevant to what we use in our practice here in Australia. And I think we can assume that using tranexamic acid will reduce morbidity and mortality for women experiencing PPH. Of course, the authors talked about the importance of trying to develop a non-intravenous route for tranexamic acid to better help those women delivering in low-resource settings. And finally, I think we need our practice, which is underpinned by clinical practice guidelines, to be able to change to reflect the findings of this study. I think it's important that our practice is nimble enough to recognise emerging evidence and to incorporate that successfully into our practice. So all you guideline writers and updaters out there, we'd ask you to get on the job and incorporate this important study into your relevant clinical practice guidelines. In summary, the WOMAN's study is a large placebo-controlled randomised trial which is probably practice-changing. We should be giving tranexamic acid early in major PPH not controlled by uterotonics. It reduces the need for laparotomy to control bleeding by 30% and reduces maternal mortality secondary to hemorrhage by 30%. Practice guidelines on PPH need to reflect this evidence. So that concludes today's podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we've enjoyed putting it together. And we'd like you to look out for us in a month's time when we'll be back on air with Rachel. Next topic. Gestational diabetes. And we're going to be looking at it from all sorts of perspectives, from a mother's perspective, from an obstetric physician's perspective, an obstetrician's perspective, and a neonatologist's perspective. And we're going to look at areas where we really need to improve our practice, because in lots of areas, we're not doing as well as we could. So if you'd like to catch up with the podcast some other time, please look us up at cog.podbean.com or share us with your friends on Facebook. Also, it would be great if you've enjoyed the podcast for you to rate us in the iTunes store. 
So if you'd like to email us with ideas or suggestions or even feedback for the program, you can email me at cogconversation at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rachel Nugent. I'm Ted Weaver. See you next month for more conversations in obstetrics and gynaecology.